Thank you, Randy. Uh, and thank you to the Mershon Center for inviting me uh, to speak today. I uh, think that if you go back to 1989, 1990, 1991, the early days of the post-Cold War period, what is remarkable about uh, that time frame is how optimistic everybody was about the future of international politics and about America's position in the world. Uh, and you can point to all sorts of speeches by George H.W. Bush and especially by President Clinton uh, making the argument that the United States uh, was an extraordinary, fortuitous, uh, wonderful uh, position and could do all sorts of things to make the world even better than it was. Uh, I think the uh, two key articles that captured the zeitgeist of the time were, first of all, Frank Fukuyama's very famous piece, The End of History. Basically what Fukuyama argued was that uh, the liberal democracies had triumphed over the fascist states and defeated them decisively in the first half of the 20th century. And then in the second half of the 20th century, they had decisively defeated communism. And there was really nothing left but liberal democracy. And what was going to happen with the passage of time was that the world would become filled with liberal democracies which in effect meant that everybody would end up looking like the United States. And of course, if everybody ended up looking like the United States, we would invariably have peace, love, and dope. Because as you all know, the United States is a good guy. And if the planet is populated with good guys, how can you have any trouble? Uh, and in effect, what Fukuyama was saying was that we had the wind at our back. It was only a matter of time before the rest of the world looked like the United States and Western Europe. And then he said that the biggest problem we would face down the road would be boredom. And the reason that boredom would be our main problem is, again, everybody would look like the United States. And as you all know, the United States never causes any trouble in the world, and so forth and so on. The other very important piece was Charles Krauthammer's famous article in Foreign Affairs, uh, The Unipolar Moment which made the argument that the United States had emerged from its competition with the Soviet Union as by far the most powerful state on the planet. And we therefore had uh, tremendous military power that we could in effect use to reshape the world in ways that suited America's interests. Of course, what happened with the passage of time is that those two arguments, Fukuyama's argument and Krauthammer's arguments were married together. And the United States, in effect, decided that it would use its awesome power to speed up the process that Fukuyama had described in the end of history. And by the way, this was a view that was shared by the vast majority of Americans. As you know, the vast majority of Americans believe that we are an exceptional people. Uh, and uh, everyone recognized that we did have tremendous power and that we could use that for good purposes. What I think is really quite striking is the extent to which uh, this endeavor has gone astray and to think about just how much trouble we are in today and to think about the fact that it's going to get worse 
uh, in the years ahead. Um, just think about what I consider to be the five big problems facing us today, which Barack Obama, in effect, inherited from the Bush administration. First two are the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war. In my opinion, we are going to lose both those wars. It's only a matter of time before it happens. Uh, we have been in Afghanistan for almost 10 years now. And if anything, the situation is getting worse. Think about that. We've been there for 10 years, and the situation is getting worse. We've been in Iraq for eight years. We may be forced out at the end of this year. I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it, but all those people who want to stay want to stay because they're very fearful of what's going to happen when we leave, which is that the place will probably come, become unglued. Uh, but uh, even if we are successful in Iraq, uh, it took one heck of a lot longer than we anticipated. It's been a heck of a lot messier, and the costs have been enormous, especially for the Iraqi people. Uh, but I think we're going to lose both those wars. Uh, then there is the Iranian nuclear enrichment program, which we have been trying mightily to shut down. We, of course, have failed to do that, and there's no reason to think that we're going to succeed. And if we bomb Iran, that'll only make a bad situation worse. Then there is the Israeli-Palestinian problem. Uh, Barack Obama has expended a significant amount of political capital to try to solve that one. He's gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Benjamin Netanyahu on three separate occasions. Netanyahu has decisively defeated him on all three occasions. And we are the laughing stock of the world on that issue because everybody knows we have zero leverage over the Israelis and they basically call the shots. And there is no happy story that anybody can tell about that particular problem. And then finally, there's the Korean nuclear program. Uh, we are deeply committed to getting North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons. North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear weapons. Indeed, they'd be fools to give up their nuclear weapons. In fact, I don't understand why the Iranians aren't getting nuclear weapons. If I was President Ahmadinejad's national security advisor and he asked me what to do, I'd tell him to get nuclear weapons right away. The idea that the United States and Israel are threatening my regime, threatening to attack me, that's simply unacceptable. There's one way to shut down that problem. It's get nuclear weapons. I don't know what they're waiting for. The North Koreans, of course, have figured that out, and they're not getting rid of their nuclear weapons. So there's five big problems, and we're zero for five. We were zero for five under George Bush, and of course, President Obama inherited all five of those problems, and he's going to go zero for five, too. And by the way, if President Obama had called me up when he took over in the White House, you know he's my neighbor, but of course he would have never called me up because I wrote the Israel lobby, and actually during the campaign, he had to disown me. But uh, be that as it may, if he had called me up and asked me how to solve those five problems, I would not have been able to tell him how to solve them, because I think all five of them are unsolvable. This raises the obvious question, what went wrong? What went wrong? How is it that the United States of America, which emerged from the Cold War, filled with optimism, filled with piss and vinegar, has ended up screwing things up so thoroughly? How is it that we're in so much trouble today? This is the question we should be asking ourselves. And by the way, there's a whole discussion to be had on the economic front as well. 
but we're not going to talk about that in large part because I don't know anything about economics. But foreign policy, I've spent a lot of my time thinking about. So the question is, what went wrong? That's the question you want to ask yourself. How could a great country like the United States of America, with all the intellectual capital that we have in this country, have blown it so completely? Well, my argument is that we adopted a fundamentally flawed grand strategy when the Cold War ended. And it was that fundamentally flawed grand strategy that got us into so much trouble. Now, let me tell you how I think about grand strategy and then tell you in detail about the particular grand strategy that we adopted. I think that the United States can roughly choose among four alternative grand strategies. The first is isolationism. Uh, isolationism is, I often teach students, has a very powerful logic underpinning it. It is for good reason that the United States was addicted to isolationism for a long period of its history. You might not be an isolationist, I'm not an isolationist, but you want to recognize that there is a powerful logic underpinning it. And the basic argument, of course, is that the United States is physically separated from the rest of the world by two giant moats. That means that other great powers can't get at us. Furthermore, we have thousands of nuclear weapons. And given that threat environment, or lack of a threat environment, there's no reason for us to be traipsing all over the world using our military force is to do X, Y, and Z. That's the basic underlying logic uh, of isolationism. Second strategy, second grand strategy, is offshore balancing, which I'll talk more about at the end of my presentation. And it's my favorite strategy, and I believe it's the strategy that has guided the United States for most of its history. It basically says there are three areas of the world that really matter, Europe, Northeast Asia, and the Persian Gulf. And what really matters in those three areas is that there be no one country that dominates the entire region. To put it in slightly different terms, it's very important that there be no regional hegemon. In other words, we don't want any country to dominate Europe or to dominate Asia the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. According to offshore balancing, we want to be the most powerful state in our region and make sure nobody else is as powerful in their region. Because if you're really powerful in your region, you're free to roam. Most of you have probably never asked yourself the question, why is the United States roaming all over God's little green acre, sticking its nose in everybody's business? It's in large part because we're free to do that because we have no problems in our own hemisphere that keep us focused on South America and Central America. What you want is for China to have to concentrate on Japan, Russia, and India and not be free to roam. So the name of the game from an offshore balancer's perspective is to make sure that there is no other regional hegemon in the world. You are the only regional hegemon and you are free to roam. And then when threats appear, the name of the game is basically to get somebody else to contain or defeat that threat should a war break out. If Nazi Germany or Imperial Germany emerges in Europe, what you want to do is rely on the Soviet Union, France, and Britain to contain that threat. You want to pass the buck. And you only go in if you have to. The reason that we basically 
did almost all of the containment vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union was that nobody else could do the job. So it was an offshore balancer. We had to come on shore. But otherwise, you buck pass. So the first strategy is isolationism. Second strategy is offshore balancing. Uh, the third strategy is selective engagement. And selective engagement is a lot like offshore balancing, except it says that instead of only going in when there's a potential hegemon that the local great powers can't contain, you actually physically locate forces in either Europe, Northeast Asia, or the Gulf. You physically locate the forces in the region and you maintain the peace in those regions. So you're not offshore, you're onshore maintaining the peace. My friend Bob Art, who teaches at Brandeis, who's a selective engager, argues that Europe is of course of great importance and therefore I agree with John on that point, but I don't agree with John who argues we should pull out of Europe and only go back if there's a potential hegemon that can't be contained. I, Bob Art, believe that we should physically station troops in Europe for the duration to serve as, to use Joseph Jaffe's famous term, the American pacifier. So selective engagers are interested in having the United States act as America's pacifier. The fourth grand strategy, and this is the one, of course, that we've employed over the past 20 years, is global dominance, or what might be called global hegemony. This is the idea that the United States should basically run the world. The United States should act as a global policeman. We should make sure that wars don't break out here, there, and everywhere. A global dominator would agree with Bob Art that we should stay in Europe, we should stay in Asia, we should stay in the Gulf, we should keep the peace there. But global dominators also believe that we should stay in other regions of the world and keep the peace there. And, for, and, and even more importantly, they're deeply interested in, in interfering in the domestic politics of countries all around the world and changing those politics. And to go back to the Fukuyama Krauthammer argument, of course, what we're going to do is we're going to interfere in the countries around the world for the purposes of turning them into liberal democracies. That's the basic name of the game. So we're not only a policeman, we're also engaged in social engineering. For someone like Bob Art, Right. And certainly for someone like me, who's an offshore balancing, balancer, I have no interest in social engineering. Bob Art has no interest in social engineering. But um, if you're interested in global domination, you're interested in social engineering. Now, it's very important to understand that there are two strands of thinking inside that grand strategic category of global domination. One are the liberal imperialists, largely identified with the uh, Democratic Party, and two are the neoconservatives, largely identified with the Republican Party. And let me spell this out in a bit more detail. The liberal imperialists are certainly interested in going around the world and interfering in the politics of countries all over the globe. I think probably the best expression of the liberal imperialist worldview is Madeleine Albright's very famous statement, which most Americans share, which is that we are the indispensable nation. 
We stand taller. We see further. What Madeleine Albright was effectively saying is that the United States not only has a right, but it has a responsibility to interfere in the politics of other countries because we know what's good for them. We know better. We stand taller. We see further. But the liberal imperialists have reservations about what you can do with military force. And therefore, they tend to place a significant emphasis on using institutions and relying on allies to try to run the world. And of course, we have the ideal set of allies in our European allies, who we have Americanized over time, and who have come to think about their responsibilities in terms of running the world much the way we do. So it's very easy to get them to go out on these various escapades that we pursue. And in fact, in the recent Libya operation, it was the French and the British who were actually leading us into another one of these adventures. So you see, we've Americanized the Europeans. These are reliable allies. And the Democrats, to put it in slightly different terms, the liberal imperialists like to use international institutions. They love the UN. They love NATO. They, they, they're willing to use military force for sure. But they have doubts about its utility and prefer to emphasize institutions. Multilateralism, of course, is one of their buzzwords. Then there are the neoconservatives who basically share Madeleine Albright's view that we stand taller and we see further. But they do not like institutions. They do not like allies very much, especially the Europeans. And they are addicted to military force. And they believe that you can wield that big stick relatively easily to get your way. So when you get the neoconservatives running the show, right, they will privilege unilateralism and the use of military power. When you get the Democrats or the liberal imperialists running the show, they'll use military force, but they'll put a lot of emphasis on doing it in the context of allies and institutions. So the story I've told you is that the United States basically has four choices. Isolationism, which is really off the table as a practical grand strategy but has a powerful logic underneath it. Two, offshore balancing, which I like and we'll talk more about. Three, selective engagement. It's Bob Art's favorite strategy. And number four is global dominance, which has been the grand strategy we have employed for the past 20 years. And again, there are two strands to it. One of the liberal imperialists and two of the neoconservatives. Now, just a little bit of history. Uh, when President Clinton came to office in January 1993, he brought a whole bevy of liberal imperialists along with him. And he, of course, is a liberal imperialist himself. Uh, and they basically ran the show in the 1990s. Uh, and then most of you probably either don't know this or have forgotten, but when President George W. Bush, who was then candidate Bush, ran against President Clinton's successor, Vice President Gore, or I shouldn't say his successor, ran against his vice president uh, in the 2000 campaign, uh, Bush, George W. Bush, basically ran as a selective engager. He said that the Clinton administration had been too 
concerned with nation building, too concerned with trying to run the globe, and therefore we should pull in our horns and reduce uh, our ambitious agenda to a more manageable one. So when George W. Bush finally gets elected and takes the White House in, or occupies the White House in January 2001, it looks like we are going to back off from our ambitious agenda that existed for the past decade, for the 1990s. But of course, in the wake of 9-11, Bush changes course and he becomes a global dominator and he basically adopts the neoconservative agenda. Uh, you want to remember that the Bush Doctrine, this has probably been forgotten by most people because the Bush Doctrine effectively crashed and burned in Iraq, but the Bush Doctrine called for doing social engineering across the entire Middle East. Uh, Iraq was supposed to be the first stop on the train line. Uh, when Steve and I did the Israel Lobby book, a lot of people said that uh, uh, Israel couldn't have been in favor of the Iraq war because Israel believed that Iran was a greater threat than Iraq. And our response to that, which we laid out in the book, is there's no question that the Israelis thought Iran was a greater threat than Iraq. No question about that. And when the Israelis in early 2002 first caught wind of the fact that we were thinking about doing <coughs> Iraq, they sent people from Jerusalem to the United States, to Washington, uh, to protest and say you should do Iran, not Iraq. But we convinced the Israelis that when we were done with Iraq, we would then do Iran and we would then do Syria. And by the way, you wouldn't have to do too many of these before everybody threw up their hands and jumped on the American bandwagon. Again, you want to remember what Frank Fukuyama said, in the vast majority of Americans believed we had the wind at our back. And we had this really powerful military. And all you had to go in, do is go in there and knock off Saddam, right? And the Iranians would be quaking in their boots, and the Syrians would be quaking in their boots. They saw what we did in Afghanistan, now they saw what we did in Iraq, and it wouldn't be long before the Iranians were taken care of. The Israelis foolishly bought this line of argument, became enthusiastic about doing Iraq, and told us, just don't forget that when you're done with Iraq, you've got to do Iran. And of course, we weren't going to forget that. But it all went to hell in a handbasket because uh, Iraq turned out to be a failure. But that was what the Bush Doctrine was all about. And it's very important for you to understand that what you had in the Clinton years uh, and what you had in the Bush years is not very different at the grand strategic level in terms of the goals that we had in mind. What was different was that the Clinton people, being liberal imperialists, tended to put more emphasis on institutions and allies, whereas the Bush people tended to place more emphasis on doing it unilaterally and using the big stick. And this, by the way, is why so many Democrats went along with the Iraq invasion. Now that Iraq has gone south, lots of Democrats like to say we were opposed. 
But for people like me who were really opposed to the Iraq War, I can tell you there were not that many Democrats who were opposed. And they sure weren't standing on the rooftop saying that this was a really harebrained scheme. And I'll tell you why in due course. But uh, the Democrats went along. Do you know that Barack Obama, who did have the wisdom to oppose that foolish war, does not have a single foreign policy advisor at the higher levels who opposed the Iraq war? Not a single foreign policy advisor who opposed the Iraq war. And he is a Democrat, surrounded by Democrats, with one notable exception, Robert Gates, who favored the war. Again, this is a country that after the Cold War ended, basically was bent on dominating the globe. We collectively, I don't include myself in this, but <laughs> we collectively believed that we stood taller and we see further and that we have a right and a responsibility to tell other people how to lead their lives. It's what being an American is all about. We are the chosen people, right? Barack Obama, you see, he's getting beaten over the head these days by the Republicans because he doesn't seem to understand American exceptionalism. Think about that word, exceptionalism. There's something exceptional about us. We know things about life. We know things about ultimate values that others don't understand. But we're going to teach them. Anyway, as I said at the very beginning, this has not worked out very well, ladies and gentlemen. Not worked out very well at all. Just think about it. Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, North Korea, and now we have this latest endeavor in Libya. This is not pretty either. Something seems to be wrong here. Anyway, what happened? What went wrong? I believe we made three fundamental mistakes. Uh, mainly after September 11th. Uh, I think the Clinton administration, for all its flaws, uh, never took us off the cliff. Uh, marched up to the cliff on a few occasions, but was just too cautious. So by the time President Clinton left office and President Bush came into the White House to replace him, we were not in bad shape. But uh, in the 2000s, we made a number of fundamental mistakes, and this of course all happened mainly in the wake of September 11th. And let me tell you what I think the three major mistakes were. First of all, we fundamentally misunderstood the terrorist threat. Uh, we misunderstood uh, the severity of the threat. We greatly overstated what the threat was. Uh, and maybe even more importantly, we failed to wrestle with and answer correctly the question of why they hate us, which is of essential importance for dealing with the threat. I mean, you have to know why they came after us on September 11th. You have to have a very clear sense of that. Uh, and it has to be a reality-based answer. Uh, and uh, we, we blew it. Let's first of all talk about the severity of the threat. Uh, first of all, we made the argument that uh, states like Syria, Iran, and even Iraq were sympathetic to terrorists like Al-Qaeda, and they were willing to give Al-Qaeda not just support, but they were willing to give 
al-Qaeda weapons of mass destruction. And as a result, we would not only have to defeat terrorist groups like al-Qaeda, but we would have to go to war against Iraq, Iran, Syria, and, and we would have to transform the entire region. This is one of the reasons that we're so interested in regional transformation. It's because we believe that the terrorist groups that are after us and the various states that operate in the Middle East are all part of a seamless web, and you have to get everybody. And of course, this is why we went to such great lengths to make the argument that Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were joined at the hip. First of all, Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were not joined at the hip. Secondly, Syria and Iran actually tried to help us uh, deal with and counter al-Qaeda in the wake of September 11th. Neither Syria nor Iran were friends of al-Qaeda. Uh, and of course, we rewarded the Iranians by putting them on the axis of evil. That's what we did to them for helping us. But the idea that these states are part of a seamless web and that there's a serious danger of a nuclear handoff uh, is, I think, not believable. Furthermore, we made the fundamental mistake of arguing that we were not only going to deal with al-Qaeda, we were going to deal with every terrorist group on the face of the earth. We were going to eliminate terrorism. So it became a global war on terrorism. We were where we had our crosshairs on every terrorist group and we were taking down states like Iran, Iraq, and Syria to boot. Uh, this was not smart uh, and uh, almost guaranteed to fail because it was going to force you to do social engineering on a massive scale. Um, I think if you think about it, our foreign policy or our grand strategy between 2001 and 2005 was the most radical grand strategy that the United States has ever adopted in its history. Uh, during that period, many of my conservative friends would say that this is a conservative foreign policy and all conservatives should support it. I said, this is ridiculous. This is not a conservative foreign policy. This is a radical policy of the first order. No conservative in his or her right mind would ever support a policy like this. Conservatives have all sorts of reservations about social engineering. I'm a conservative, right? I don't believe that you can take the US Army, uh, which I'm intimately familiar with from my past experiences, and take it into places like Iraq and Afghanistan and God knows where else and do social engineering at the end of a rifle barrel. This is asking for big trouble, in my opinion. I'm very conservative about these issues. These people were radicals. This was a radical foreign policy. Wow, the idea that you're going to reorder the entire Middle East. Talk about chutzpah. Uh, but anyway, that's the goal we set out for ourselves. What we should have done is kept our eye on the target, which was al-Qaeda. But we didn't know that. And you all know the story as to how we took our eye off the ball in Afghanistan and focused on Iraq before finishing the job in Afghanistan. That's what happens when you're thinking about a global war on terror. We also misread the threat in a really fundamental way in the sense that we greatly overestimated or overstated the case as to how dangerous the other side was. Uh, I mean, John Mueller is uh, 
the, the key person on this point, he and Ian Lustig, uh, they make it very clear that uh, the threat here was just not very great. I mean, you have people like Norman Podhoritz, the former editor of Commentary Magazine, who are comparing this conflict that we're in. It is a conflict. I'm not denying the fact that we have a problem. The question is, what is the nature of the problem and how severe is the threat? But talking about World War IV, World War IV, who have been the two biggest problems or the two biggest threats to the United States since 9-11? The shoe bomber and the underwear bomber. The shoe bomber and the underwear bomber. This is the equivalent of World War IV? Are we serious? I know a great deal about World War III, World War II. I know a great deal about World War III, which is the Cold War for them. World War IV? Al-Qaeda? Come on, this is not serious. Serious countries like the United States of America are not supposed to be making these sorts of arguments. World War IV? The shoe bomber, the underwear bomber, right? How many Americans have died from terrorism in recent years? Not many, especially if you take away September 11th. This threat is not that severe, I'm sorry. Again, do we face a problem? Yes. Is this World War IV? No. So we greatly overestimated the threat. We expanded it to a point where we had to fight other countries and other terrorist groups, some of which wanted to help us, but we turned into enemies. And then we get to what I think is the all important question of why they hated us. As you all know, there are two answers to that question. One, they hate us because of who we are. And two, they hate us because of our policies. Well, in the wake of September 11th, it was almost impossible to argue that they hate us because of our policies, because you would, in effect, then be saying, we bear some of the responsibility for what happened on September 11th, if not a lot of the responsibility. So of course, we had to concoct this argument that they hate us because of who we are. But there is an overwhelming amount of survey data and anecdotal data that shows that they do not hate us because of who we are. They hate us because of our policies. They hate us because we support or have supported authoritarian dictators. They hate us because of the fact that we put sanctions on Iraq that killed hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqi civilians. They hate us because we support the Israelis and their policies towards the Palestinians. By the way, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the principal architect of the 9-11 attacks and who was a student in the United States well before those attacks, said that he did not hate us and did not help plan the attack because he hates America and he hates democracy. Instead, he said very clearly, it's in the 9-11 Commission report, that he attacked us because of our support for Israel. So it's very clear that they attacked us because of our policies. But we, of course, we're not going to change our policies. Right? We decided they hate us because of who we are. And therefore, what we decided to do was not change who we are, but to change who they are. Right? That's what the Bush Doctrine was. We were going to change who they are. It was social engineering at the end of a rifle barrel. We were facilitating the process that Frank Fukuyama was 
pointed to in his famous 1989 article. We were going to democratize the Middle East. Because once we democratized the Middle East and made those countries look like us, they would be good guys. And there'd be no more terrorism problem, no more nuclear proliferation problem. That's the basic operating assumption here. But of course, the real problem was, the real problem was our policies. Another big problem of ours was occupation. The fact that we were occupying Saudi Arabia. This drove uh, Osama bin Laden crazy. He could not countenance the idea of American troops in Saudi Arabia. It's our policy. But instead of getting out of the Middle East, we started invading other countries. We had no Al-Qaeda problem in Iraq until we invaded and occupied the place. Let's go back to Ronald Reagan, who looks better and better with the passage of time. When Ronald Reagan was running the ship estate, we were offshore balancers. We kept their troops over the horizon. There are some of us in the room who are old enough to remember that we had no forces that were designed to fight in the Middle East until after 1979, and we built the Rapid Deployment Force, the famous RDF. It was an over-the-horizon capability, because we understood full well it is not a good idea for the United States of America to stick forces into countries in the Middle East. In 1982, the Israelis invaded Lebanon, and all hell broke loose, and we put the Marines in Beirut. Shortly thereafter, the Marine barracks was blown up, 241 Marines were dead, and you know what Ronald Reagan did? He talked tough, and then he pulled us out. He got out of there in a hurry, and the problem went away. You go into a place like Beirut with the U.S. Marines, it is not going to be long before you have a terrorism problem. In case you don't realize, I know it's very hard for Americans to understand this. Other people don't like you coming into their country and telling them what color toilet paper they can use. There's this very important concept that's in the air. It's called self-determination. People like to determine for themselves what kind of political system they'll have, what sort of social order they have, and they don't want Americans telling them what to do. They don't want Americans running around with guns in their street. And in most cases, what you get is an insurrection. So occupation is very dangerous. But the Bush doctrine is all about occupation. This brings me to my second point. First point as to how this all went wrong is we understood, misunderstood the terrorist threat. Second is we did not understand the limits of military force. And let me say a bit more about this because this is of enormous importance. Uh, I uh, wrote my first book uh, on conventional deterrence uh, and uh, I actually won a book award. I have. Uh, the second uh, book award up there. Uh, on, and the principal thesis of, of that book uh, is that military leaders go to war uh, only when they think they can win a quick and decisive victory. And what allowed us to adopt the Bush doctrine and go to war in Iraq was we thought that in December 2001 we had found the magic formula 
for winning quick and decisive victories in the Arab and Islamic world. The reason that the Clinton administration in the 1990s was so skittish about using military force is when they thought about intervening with ground forces in a country in the Arab and Islamic world, they thought Somalia, they thought Mogadishu, they thought Vietnam. When we first went into Afghanistan, it looked like it was going to be a real mess. We had no idea how we were going to win a quick and decisive victory. That was mid-October 2001. But by December 2001, less than two months later, it looked like we had won a stunning victory with remarkably few American ground forces, right, and reliance, heavy reliance on the U.S. Air Force, indigenous forces and small teams of special forces, small CIA teams, and so forth and so on. And you remember when we went into Iraq, there was a big fight between the civilians in the Pentagon and the generals, because the generals wanted to go in heavy and the civilians wanted to go in very small forces. Because the civilians thought that we could do in Iraq what we had done in Afghanistan. We didn't need large numbers of troops. And we also believed, as a result of what happened in Afghanistan, that we would not have to stay and do nation building because we would put someone like Karzai in power, which is what we did in Afghanistan, and that would allow us to get out and move on to the next target. The thing you have to remember about the Bush administration's doctrine is to be successful, you have to be able to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Right? You've got to go in, do Afghanistan in two months, get out, reload the shotgun, do Iraq, get out, reload the shotgun, and put the crosshairs on Iran or on Syria. You can't get bogged down. So, so there's two reasons you don't want to get bogged down. First of all, who wants to fight a 10-year war in Afghanistan? Nobody in their right mind. That's one reason not to go in. But the second reason is the Bush doctrine is highly dependent on winning quick and decisive victories. That's what I learned doing conventional deterrence. And it makes sense, okay? We, up until Afghanistan, didn't think that we could knock off a regime and avoid an occupation. We didn't think we could win quick and decisive victories. But by December 2001, we think we have the magic formula. No surprise, we're off to the races in Iraq. And this is why we're telling the Israelis when they come over here in early 2002, don't worry, folks. As soon as we're done with Iraq, we're on to the next target. These boys and girls had no idea that they were jumping into a quagmire. Not only that, they had no idea that Afghanistan was not a victory. It was a mirage. I'll talk about that in two seconds. So we were going to end up in two hell holes. But it didn't look like that at the time. Now let's talk about... Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a mirage. Why was it a mirage? Two reasons. First of all, we could not decisively defeat the Taliban. We gave them a good licking, to use my mother's terminology. We gave them a good licking. But they basically disappeared. They basically disappeared into the countryside and into Pakistan, which meant that somewhere down the road 
they would rise from the dead and come back to fight another day. This is not like what we did to Germany or Japan in World War II, where we decisively defeated them. And there was no question of the Wehrmacht coming back to life. It was kaput. The Taliban would eventually come back to life. And they were a powerful political force. Don't forget they controlled almost the entire country before we moved in in October 2001. So they'd come back. This brings me to the second reason we were doomed. We put a man in power in Kabul who was not only incompetent, but was fundamentally dishonest. That meant when the Taliban came back from the dead, he would be incapable of dealing with the Taliban. And guess who would therefore have to do the job? Uncle Sugar. That's what happened. I could show you the numbers as the troops go up and up and up. As I can tell you from when I was a young man in the US military, the Vietnam War was raging. When you go into a country like Afghanistan, you go into a country like Vietnam, and the regime that you're supporting does not have a lot of legitimacy, and you are an occupier or a foreigner, you are in real trouble. And when you are up against a formidable adversary, be it the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese or be the Taliban, you are going to have your hands full. And that's where we are today. So the fact that we didn't decisively defeat them, and they would eventually come back, and it would be Karzai, who was incompetent and inefficient, who would have to deal with them, meant that we would have to go back in. And that's where we are today. And then, of course, there's Iraq. We went into Iraq thinking that was going to be quick and easy. We thought we'd get rid of Saddam, we'd get rid of Saddam, and we'd put somebody in his place, and that would take care of it. Nation building? There was not going to be any nation building. Occupation? You remember General Shinseki? The, the whole incident with General Shinseki, very, very important. General Shinseki, who's chief of staff of the army, before the Iraq war, goes up on Capitol Hill. These senators who are kind of nervous ask him, how many forces are we going to need to occupy this place? And he says a couple hundred thousand. What happens is that first Paul Wolfowitz then Donald Rumsfeld basically go ballistic. They can't believe he said that. They diss him. Uh, they say that's not true and so forth and so on. Now, why do they do that? Because they understand, they understand that if Shinsheki's right, the Bush doctrine collapses because you can't float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. If you've got to leave a couple hundred thousand troops behind, you've just undermined the whole strategy. What Shinsheki was saying is the strategy won't work. So of course they had to diss him. So when we went into Iraq, hardly anybody thought we were going to stay. It's eight years now. God knows how many years we'll be there. If we're lucky, they'll throw us out at the end of this year. But don't bet a lot of money on that, right? Hardly anybody expected that. Because we thought we had found the magic formula. Of course, we hadn't, right? We got rid of Saddam. We unloosed all these centrifugal forces had a civil war, had a major insurgency at the same time, and on and on. And there we are. Third mistake we made, and this is the hardest one of all to believe, is that these boys and girls, and most Americans, thought it would be very easy to spread democracy in the Middle East. We have a huge number of academic studies on this issue, 
And they all come to the same conclusion. Spreading democracy in other countries is one whale of a difficult task, and indeed, it rarely succeeds. And when it succeeds, it usually succeeds in developed countries like Germany and Japan. And the idea that you're going to go into the Middle East, which does not exactly have a rich history of democracy, and you're going to spread it, and you're going to do it at the end of a rifle barrel, is, to put it crudely, Looney Tunes. It's just plain crazy. And if you think you've got to do it anyway, you certainly want to plan for it. And you certainly want to understand that this is going to be one whale of a difficult task. And think of all the ways it can go wrong and build in defense mechanisms and so forth and so on. We did none of that. We just went marching in on the assumption that all we had to do was knock off the tyrant, i.e. Saddam Hussein, and because every Iraqi had a democratic impulse hardwired into him or her, that democracy would spring forth, much as it did in Afghanistan. I mean, we were on our way up. Frank Fukuyama, by the way, I ran into Frank. I remember the date, November 28th, 2002. I was at Harvard University to give a talk, and I ran into Frank, and he came up to me, and he told me, to my utter shock, that he greatly appreciated the work that Steve Walt and I were doing in opposing the Iraq War. And uh, I figured if anybody would be for the Iraq War, it would be Frank. But Frank, much to his credit, understood that although he believed fervently we had the wind at our back, this was not a process that was going to happen easily and quickly. And it was going to be very messy. And Frank did not think that it would be possible to use the American military to achieve that end. And by the way, this is basically why Frank has abandoned the neoconservatives and become a liberal imperialist. And this is clearly laid out in his book. He fully understood because he knows the scholarly literature. And again, most scholarly literatures, as we academics in the audience know, never reach a consensus on anything. You can find people here, there, and everywhere on every issue. But there are a few issues out there where there is a consensus. This is one of those issues where there was a clear consensus. Almost everybody, if not everybody, agreed that spreading democracy is very hard. And again, I want to make it very clear as to what happens here. Right? What happens here is that if you don't win a quick and decisive victory and you get involved in counterinsurgency, and you got to come up with a new field manual, 3-24, and you have to think about this and that, you can't float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. If you have to stay there and do nation building to grow democracy slowly in Iraq, you can't float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. And if you can't float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, you can't make the Bush doctrine work, number one. And number two, you're an occupier. You're an occupier in the age of nationalism. You're an occupier in the age of nationalism, which means you're going to get an insurgency, which means you're going to have your hands full. What is truly remarkable is that we did not foresee hardly any of this. There were certainly some people who did. But the fact that the Democratic Party joined hands with the Republican Party and went marching into Iraq 
is really quite amazing. Let me close by uh, talking a bit about offshore balancing. I believe that what the United States should do uh, is adopt an offshore balancing policy. I described to you in some detail what offshore balancing involves. I want to be very clear, I'm not an isolationist at all. Uh, and uh, I believe the United States should have powerful military forces. But uh, I would not build military forces to fight more counterinsurgencies. Uh, I agree with uh, Secretary of Defense, is Secretary of Defense Robert Gates's comments at West Point recently that you know anybody who's planning to fight any more wars like Iraq or Afghanistan ought to have his or head his or her heads examined. Uh, I think we should get out of the business of uh, occupying countries. I think we should get out of the business of nation building. I think we should get out of the building business of spreading democracy across the globe. Uh, I believe in self-determination. Uh, I believe that we should build a relatively small military force that has the capability to intervene in the Persian Gulf when necessary. With regard to Europe, I would pull all of our troops out of Europe and not go back in unless there was a regional hegemon we could not contain. Uh, with regard to Asia, I think the principal threat the United States faces down the road is a rising China. Uh, and I think that the United States is going to have to do most of the heavy lifting in Asia to deal with a rising China. So I think that is a threat that we do have to worry about. Uh, and again, I do think that the United States has a deep-seated interest in having the capability to intervene in the Gulf of Nessus if necessary. But I certainly wouldn't station forces there. I would get out of Afghanistan as quickly as possible. That's not going to happen for political reasons, but we will eventually leave. Uh, and hopefully not go back again or into a similar place. And I'd make the same argument with regard uh, to Iraq. I think the fact that we have been at war for two out of every three years since the Cold War ended and that there's no end in sight is disturbing. Uh, I think that the idea of having a powerful national security state that is constantly waging war all around the globe is not good for American democracy. The founding fathers were, I think, very clear and very smart on this issue. One of the principal reasons the Founding Fathers did not want us traipsing all over the globe and intervening in European conflicts is that they understood that it was not healthy for democracy. And I believe that is the case. So one of the principal reasons I'm interested in stopping all the wars is that I don't think it's good for American democracy. Furthermore, I think spending all of this money on defense is just crazy given the budget deficits that we have. I think the fact that hardly anybody is talking about cutting defense in a time where we have to make massive cutbacks in spending because of the budget deficit is just hard to believe. When you think that the United States has no peer competitor, no country on the face of the earth that could give us a run for our money at this point in time, and we are spending so much money on defense to deal with the underwear bomber and the shoe bomber, I mean, this is really just hard to believe. 
I would really take a hacksaw to the defense budget. I wouldn't even hesitate. And the idea that our security would be hurt by that, I find hard to believe. We spend far too much money on defense, and we're fighting too many wars. Just think about that. We have been at war for two out of every three years since the Cold War ended in 1989. All this is to say, and I'll conclude here and gladly take questions, we are really in a heck of a lot of trouble on the foreign policy front, and we are really in a heck of a lot of trouble on the economic front. And all of this raises the even more fundamental question, which I have not addressed here because I do not have a good answer. But how is it that a country like the United States of America, with all of this intellectual capital, could be behaving so foolishly? Thank you. I'd be glad to take questions. Oh, sir. If you could stand up, that would be good. Sure. Uh, my name is Bentley. Thanks for coming on the Graduate Student Support Society's program here. I'm in fundamental agreement with the sort of tenor of your overall conversation. I just want to thank you for saying it in such an articulate and passionate way. Um, but I want to sort of ask a, a, for a, a question that sort of comes to what you said right at the end there. How do we uh, make such bad choices? Because as I saw your central puzzle of the way you set up the problem here, um, you were sort of saying what went wrong. And I guess the one way to interpret that is why did we end up doing global dominance instead of, say, offshore balancing or selective and that sort of begs the question of why Clinton brought in liberal imperialism. And I just don't know enough about the history to know that. So I'd like to know why there were so many imperialists in the Clinton administration and where they came from. And secondly, and this seems to be the more fundamental question, is um, why did the Bush administration slip into global dominance even though he came in with the intention of starting out with selective engagement? So why is there that pressure in American foreign policy from these sort of offshore balancing or selective engagement strategies to U.S. imperialism? Yeah. And I guess the sort of standard explanation we have is that, oh, 9-11 happened. Um, and then your sort of explanation is that, well, 9-11 happened and then we were really stupid. Um, and I guess I'm wondering why we were really stupid. And I guess I just want to push you sort of in a, um, sort of a direct way and, and sort of challenge and maybe the real reason why we're stupid or maybe the real reason why we keep misunderstanding things because of the fundamental underlying thinking that we're using to try and understand foreign policy. And I guess just to be extra provocative, maybe the problem isn't a particular grand strategy, but the idea that we can have a grand strategy in the first place is the real problem here. So I wonder to what extent grand strategic thinking um, in general sort of leads us in the global uh, dominance leads us towards that strategy, um, whereas maybe sort of a pragmatic ad hoc problem solving strategy that you know, sort of took a less grandiose view of what foreign policy was about um, might actually help temper some of our more um, adventurous conservatives. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just make a couple points, but do keep in mind that I said I did not have a good answer for what's gone wrong. This is especially true with regard to the economic front. Uh, I, I, I don't, I, I sort of don't understand that one either. Uh, I mean, we have all these Nobel Prize winners in economics at the University of Chicago, uh, and I don't recollect that any of them foresaw the tsunami that hit us in 2008. And in fact, if I'm correct, a good chunk of them uh, played a key role in helping to construct the system uh, that produced the tsunami. Uh, and then what I find even more remarkable is that Barack Obama uh, called on many of the people who helped create the tsunami to help fix the problem afterwards. Uh, and I find this quite amazing. Uh, so I, I just be aware that I don't have great problems. Uh, 
Yeah, great answers. Uh, what I find uh, perplexing about this is that we do have a lot of experience in dealing with military force around the globe. And we have a lot of experts, right? It, it, it's not like grand strategy is something that we didn't think a lot about over the past 50 years. It's not like we didn't think a lot about using military forces in places like Iraq or in the Middle East more generally. We have a lot of seasoned veterans in our midst because of the Cold War. If you go back to 1947, in 1947, the United States has virtually no experience uh, having a large national security state in peacetime. Yes, we had a large national security state during the American Civil War, briefly during World War I, and then during World War II. But when World War II ends, we have our first experience with a national security state in peacetime. And by the way, we then all of a sudden are faced with a situation where we have nuclear weapons, and we really don't know how to think about nuclear weapons at first. Right? The nuclear deterrence literature that I spent endless hours studying didn't exist in 1947. Right? So we were in the dark trying to get our bearings in 1947. But in 1991, when the Cold War ends, uh, we have this huge national security establishment. Washington, D.C. is full of think tanks that didn't exist in 1947. The academy is full of places like the Mershon Center, the University of Chicago Political Science Department. There are lots of experts. There are retired generals all over the place who have much experience from managing military forces during the Cold War and so forth and so on. Uh, so uh, that's what I find so puzzling about our actions during the 90s, but especially after September 11th. I find it quite remarkable that more people didn't think long and hard about Iraq, that there weren't more people who were sort of building on what General Shinshaki said. There weren't more people just thinking grand strategically. Instead, what you get is a remarkable consensus. When I go to Washington, D.C., what always stuns me is how powerful the consensus is. I'll just tell you one quick story on this that gets at it. In the run-up to the war, uh, the Iraq War, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations in New York held the big debate between Bill Crystal, William Crystal, and Max Boot on one side, and Steve Walt and I together on the other side. This is before Steve and I wrote on the Israel lobby. The first things we ever wrote together, actually, were uh, our opposition to the Iraq War. So we had a debate at the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, we took a vote. Les, Gel Les Gelb, who was the president of the council, was the moderator. And he took a vote, and we won the debate. I would say it was two to one, based on what people said. And Les said to us, uh, on two or three occasions after that debate, that we had wiped the floor with Boot and Crystal. That's what Les said to us. So I said to Les, on two separate occasions, Les, if we wipe the floor, with Boot and Crystal, why are you in favor of the war? 
because Les was in favor of the war. And I, I kind of couldn't understand why he was in favor of the war if he thought we had the better side of the debate, clearly had the better side of the debate. Later, Les wrote that the reason he supported the war was because he could not maintain his street creds in the national security community if he didn't support the war. In other words, the costs of opposing the war were so great that he would have paid a significant price. Just tell you another story. I knew Bill Odom, who's now deceased, from when I was a West Point cadet. He was a colonel at West Point. And Bill was a real uh, junkyard dog, and he was willing to stake out controversial positions. The run-up to the Iraq War, I'm at uh, Reagan Airport in Washington, sitting there having a cup of coffee. I see him get off the plane. So I say, Bill, Bill. So he comes over, he sits down, has a cup of coffee with me. So I said, surely you understand that this is a cockamamie war, right? That this is going to get us into one heck of a lot of trouble. So he says, yeah, yeah. So I said, well, why aren't you opposing the war? Why aren't you speaking up? He later spoke out against the war, but only after it went south. And he basically told me the same story, that uh, you know, it was just one of those things that was very hard to oppose. right? So again, I, I kind of don't understand how this happens. You have people who know better, who, who don't speak up. So, something in, in, in the culture has gone wrong. And uh, I can't put my finger on it. Uh, I do think that, to get to the nub of your question, that because we won such a stunning victory in the Cold War, such a stunning victory, and because you could make the argument that Fukuyama made, which is that we have the wind at our back, and that that dovetailed so neatly with American exceptionalism, which is hardwired into almost all of you, Right? I mean, most of you just believe that, you know, we're America, we're special. And, and, and Frank's story just resonated with everybody. And we, we had this fantastic power. We just thought that we could run the world. And I guess it was just a matter of time before we ran the ship aground. And that eventually happened in Iraq. But I'm not sure that's an adequate answer. I just, you know, don't really have a good one. Sir. Ask you a question? Yes, sir. What was the cost of losing in Vietnam? Pulling out and then losing. What was the cost? Um, I, I would, uh, there were numerous costs I know of right now, sir. What were they? Uh, a lot of damage to the power of the executive as well as reputational damage lobster. Oh, that was because of Watergate. It wasn't because of Vietnam. Yes, sir. No, I mean, war, it was because of Watergate. But what was the, what was the cost of pulling out of Vietnam? There were no costs. It was a stupid war. 58,000 people, 58,000 Americans died for no good reason. 
for no good reason. It made not a bit of difference that we lost in Vietnam. I'll remind you that 14 years later, we emerged from the Cold War as Godzilla, <laughs> right? There were no costs, right? The only costs were those 50, 58,000 Americans who died and probably more than two million Vietnamese, right? When you think of the costs that the Vietnamese people paid for that war, it was a stupid war. There were no costs. You're too young, for sure, to remember the domino theory. That was one of the reasons we went in, the domino theory. I told me the domino theory, right? I mean, there were no costs. As somebody who was in the American military from 1965 to 75, which is coterminous with the Vietnam War, right, it pains me to say what I just said. It pains me to say that the anti-war protesters were basically correct, right? And uh, it's just, it was a foolish war. But what, what price are we going to pay? I, I want you to just tell me. Let's just assume we leave Afghanistan. What price are we going to pay? But, so, but, but the argument, the argument's reputation, the argument that's usually made is that if you pull out, then al-Qaeda will reestablish itself in Afghanistan and will be back to square one. That's usually the argument that's made. That's the argument that's made <coughs> for the position that Afghanistan is different than Vietnam. I mean, we lost at Vietnam, but the North Vietnamese didn't come after us, right? They just wanted their country. And they got their country, and that was the end of it, right? The argument here is that if the Taliban wins, which in effect happens if we pull out, right, then al-Qaeda will reestablish itself. The, the, I, I, the reputation argument, I mean, wh where does reputation matter for us? Let's, let's assume that you're correct, that our reputation is damaged. So what? I, I don't believe that, but so what? Our reputation is damaged. But where is that going to hurt us? In the Cold War, you can make the reputation argument because we had to defend the West Europeans, we had to defend the Japanese and the Koreans. But who are we defending here? And who are we defending them from? I mean, <laughs> we have all these phantom threats out there, you know? And so I, I, don't, I don't think the reputation argument carries. I'm not picking on you. I'm just going back and forth to sort of lay this out. I don't think the reputation argument is the argument you want to use against me. I think the argument you want to use against me is that al-Qaeda will then come back into Afghanistan. And I'll give you my counter to that. My counter to that, <laughs> I know you're shocked that I have a counter. <laughs> but you've got to remember, I'm an old war horse. Uh, my counter to that is that, uh, in fact, al-Qaeda is alive and well in Pakistan. And if you read the papers carefully, al-Qaeda doesn't have much of an interest in coming back in Afghanistan, coming back into Afghanistan, because uh, Pakistan is a better place for them to be located. 
right? So even if we win, if we win in Afghanistan, which I don't think we're going to do, I hope I'm wrong, but let's assume we win in Afghanistan. Do you think that that solves the Al-Qaeda problem? They're in Pakistan. And if they're not in Pakistan, they're in Yemen. The idea that we're going to sort of fight conventional wars all over the globe and track these people down and inflict a decisive defeat on them, it's just not going to happen. So I don't think there's any real costs associated with pulling out of Afghanistan. We're not going to do it. By the way, we're not going to do it for domestic political reasons. This drives me crazy, too. Right. Just, I just want to go back to Vietnam again. We now have, you know, pretty much all the historical records on why we went into Vietnam. Two reasons we went into Vietnam. One is the domino theory, which we briefly talked about. The other reason is domestic politics. It's very clear that Lyndon Johnson uh, was paranoid about the, the threat of the Republicans uh, accusing him of having lost Vietnam. Because you remember Harry Truman was accused of having lost China in the early 1950s, right? And LBJ did not want to uh, lose uh, Vietnam. Uh, and that's one of the principal reasons uh, that we went into Vietnam. What's really quite remarkable is I thought for many years that we went into Vietnam uh, thinking that we were going to win and that it was going to be easy and that we got bushwhacked. In fact, what's truly amazing is that almost all of the key decision makers understood that we were jumping into a quagmire. And it makes perfect sense. We had helped assassinate Diem in 1963. The political situation was deteriorating in 64. It was getting even worse in 65. And the reason we put the Marines in Da Nang in 65, March of 65, and then ramp up the numbers is because the situation is deteriorating. We were not optimistic at all. We were pessimistic. The reason, the main reason, in my opinion, that Johnson went in was domestic politics. The main reason I believe that Barack Obama up the ante in Afghanistan and will not pull out of Afghanistan is domestic politics. Because the Democrats understand that if they cut and run in Afghanistan, the Republicans will crucify them politically. So what they're doing is kicking the can down the road. And we have this military that, for some reason, is willing to go over to Afghanistan and Iraq for every other year of their life. And the political elites in this country, which are paying hardly any price at all for fighting this war, are willing to continue sending them because they understand full well what the domestic political costs would be of cutting and running. So we're not going to leave any one of those wars unless we're forced to, either by economic considerations or by the fact that the military says, finally, enough is enough, or both of those things. Sorry, I didn't mean to peck on you. Uh, okay. Well, let me just say a few things about what happens when you get in these wars. I often say that one thing I learned, you know, during the Vietnam years, I learned two things. Uh, number one, uh, don't go into these places. And number two, if you get in, it's very hard to get out. Right? And I just gave this gentleman 
one reason I thought why it's hard to get out. It's also very hard to get out because the military is invested in this war in a really big way. Uh, for the American military, losing in Vietnam was profoundly humiliating. We lost. Americans don't like losers, right? And you just take someone like General Petraeus. General Petraeus has a profound interest for all the obvious reasons, not peculiar uh, to his personality, just because he is an army general who has been deeply involved in, in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. But his reputation is inextricably bound up with what happens in Iraq and what happens in Afghanistan. And not only is his personal reputation inextricably bound up, but the institution's reputation is bound up. So for the leaders of the US Army to say, we should cut and run and just accept the fact that it didn't work out is almost unthinkable. To come at it from a different perspective, a lot of American soldiers have died or have been badly wounded. And when you pay those kinds of costs, uh, it better be for a good reason. And how can you say, you know, in the year 2010 that we've just fought, in, or 2011, that we've just fought for 10 years in Afghanistan and it really didn't matter that much, and we can leave now, and John Mearsheimer's right, we're not going to pay any real costs. This is going to be antithetical to military leaders, right? So, and it'll be antithetical to many of the comrades of people who were wounded or killed. So the military itself has a powerful set of incentives to keep this one going, okay? And the civilians, of course, have a powerful set of incentives. First of all, I gave you the domestic political argument about Barack Obama and the Democrats. But furthermore, uh, all of these elites who have been running foreign policy, be they Democrats or Republicans, supported the war. So they want to win because it's their war. Someone like me, who argued this was crazy from the beginning, right, has a very different look, outlook, than someone who pushed this war on us. George Bush, Vice President Cheney, Hillary Clinton, Bob Gates. This is their war. They all supported it. So if they can stay there, and maybe we'll pull off a miracle, they'll stay there. So, so you can see where uh, the military itself and the civilian leadership have very powerful incentives to stay. Now to take this a step further, this is very different than Vietnam for a variety of reasons, okay? The first reason is the draft, okay? The draft mattered enormously. Old Charles Rangel from my neck of the woods, he's a was a congressman from New York in the run-up to the Iraq War. Charles Rangel said, quite correctly, if we had a draft, we would have had no Iraq War. We wouldn't have, because most of you wouldn't opt for going, right? And we don't have a draft. We have a small coterie of individuals, right, 
who are committed to fighting these kinds of wars. And because the rest of the population pays no real price for it, it's easy to say, just keep going, just keep going. If you were sending, if you went up to Capitol Hill and you took the kids of all the senators and congressmen and sent them to Afghanistan and Iraq, you wonder how quickly that war would end, right? So the lack of the draft really matters. Second thing that's different is just the number of casualties or number of deaths, 4,000 plus versus 58,000 plus. Vietnam, especially, you know, in, in the late 60s, you know, we were doing the search and destroy missions. It was very, very deadly, right? So those casualties, right? Then the other thing is in the Vietnam War, we had an individual replacement system, and now we have a unit replacement system. The importance of this cannot be underestimated. When you went to Vietnam, you just got sent over there, and you got sent to a central uh, clearinghouse, so to speak, and then you got farmed out to you know, the 101st Airborne, the 1st Infantry Division, whatever. Uh, and we've moved away from that model, and what we do is we send whole units over. Uh, and uh, uh, that makes it much easier uh, to sustain the war uh, within the military because you have unit cohesion and people in particular units have lost buddies and they want to go back and make up for what happened <laughs> and so forth and so on. Uh, so we have a military today, right? We have a military today that is fundamentally different than the military that existed during the Vietnam War. And the politicians have figured out that what you want to do with that military is constantly tell it what a terrific job it's doing, right? You, you're, most of you are too young to remember how bad it was during the Vietnam, the extent, Vietnam War, the extent to which the American military was dissed by our society. And it was not, you know, people say, oh, it's just a bunch of lefties on college campuses. No, 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 no. And the key there, for those of you who haven't seen Rambo First Blood, you see Rambo First Blood? Very important movie. Very important movie. Because who's going at Rambo? Remember, Congressional Medal of Honor winner, right? Vietnam veteran. Who's going after Rambo? It's Red America. That's Red America that's going after Rambo. Just think about that, right? And, 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 and what we've done is gone in the opposite direction. So the military is constantly told what a wonderful job it's doing, how patriotic they are, and so forth and so on. They're constantly being patted on the back, right? And therefore, they're willing to keep going over there. And the people who are patting them on the back, of course, are paying no price. Right? So you can see how you can keep this going for a really long period of time. Right? And this is why, I told you, we've been fighting wars two out of every three years. When I'm back here in 10 years, probably four out of every five years. You should stand up just so everybody can hear you. is a cautionary tale about the use of force and power and very much an anti-primacy talk, right? But your book, Offensive Real about offensive realism, the, the tragedy of great power politics, did actually come out in 2001. So maybe I know with that why we made errors we might have made. They misread your book because I can't square what you're, the book's saying, and you say in the book very clearly about power. You can never have enough power. You never know others' intentions. You have to maximize your power for that reason. 
uh, and uh, that all states are revisions unless they've achieved hegemony. Um, now, of course, the U.S. is the only state that's ever achieved anything with Germany, but still, one would read the book and think that you would be more of a primacy type, whereas your policy prescription is very much, it seems to me, a defense of realist, sort of offshore balancing. It's not even in selective engagement. It's a step lower. So I'm just wondering how you square that. Okay, good. I, I am not an anti-primacy advocate. I want to be very clear. I am a primacy advocate. I believe that the United States worked very hard <coughs> to be the most powerful state on the planet. And I think that is a good thing because that's the best way to maximize your security. And I am interested in remaining the most powerful state on the planet. The question is, what does that mean? Now, my argument is that it is impossible to be a global hegemon. The world is just too big and there's too much water. And the best you can hope for is to dominate your region of the world and make sure that nobody else dominates its region of the world. And that China or Japan and Asia or Imperial Germany, Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union have to worry about their neighbors and are faced with balancing coalitions so that they're weak. And that hopefully they eventually disappear from the face of the earth. Randy's heard my rhetoric on this before and of course he's read my book. We had four peer competitors, potential peer competitors in the 20th century. Imperial Germany, Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and the former Soviet Union. As you all know, we played a key role in putting all four of them on the scrap heap of history. And as I've told the Chinese when I've gone to China, if you get big and you get powerful, you will try to dominate your region. And rest assured, we will try and put you on the scrap heap of history too. We do not tolerate peer competitors. Okay, So I am a realist at heart. Okay, My only point is, to put it in Clint Eastwood's language that you would all understand, a man has to know his limits. And when you start thinking that you can dominate the entire globe, right, and you can start interfering in the politics of states and rearranging their domestic politics, you are, if anything, going to weaken your power, not strengthen it. Okay? It's so my final point on this. The countries that we are involved with have remarkably little power. They matter a little for the balance of power. If you're interested in the balance of power like I am, what should really concern you is Chinese economic growth and American economic problems, right? We're like Britain in 1890 looking out at Imperial Germany, making lots of babies and making lots of steel and getting bigger and bigger. And there's old Admiral Tirpitz looming on the horizon, right? And Kaiser Bill and General von Moltke, I mean, this makes me very nervous, right? These people have more than four times the population of the United States. Four times the population. If they turn themselves into a giant Hong Kong, do you know how much economic might they're going to have relative to us? The Soviet Union, at the height of its power during the Cold War, probably had a third the gross national product of the United States. 
A China that's a giant Taiwan will probably have two or three times the gross national product of the United States. And furthermore, we'll be taking them on in their backyard, 6,000 miles away from the West Coast. This makes me, as a good realist, very nervous. Am I worried about the underwear bomber? You may be, but I'm not. Anyway, on that note, I'm going to have to <laughs> Thank you very much, and I'll hang around if anybody wants to talk. I apologize for those of you who I didn't get to. I was long-winded in my answers, but. Always good. Great talk. I got to take off and get the kids. Oh, good. Yeah, great seeing you.